The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. King. We come to you and pray. Lift up the gates of our hearts and come in. Come in in triumph. Shining glory throughout our hearts into every corner of our lives. That is our need. That's our hope. You are the King of glory. Show us that. Press it upon our hearts. Extend your reign here this morning. Change us. Show yourself strong and mighty, even in your humble suffering. Move us to obedience and allegiance. Lord, that's our need to cling fast to You, to hold fast to You. Would You by grace do that this morning? Lift up the gates of our hearts and come in, I pray. We pray it for Christ's glory and for our good. Amen. The king has come. His coronation has occurred. He is enrobed in splendor. His throne is set up. He is seated. The decree goes out to the far corners of the territory, announcing his reign, calling for allegiance. Are you with him or against him? It is of vital importance that you answer that question. Are you with him or against him? His decree goes forth now. But if you wait until his army comes, it's too late. Are you with him or against him? Now I suspect that a number of us here this morning just thought, oh, he's talking to the person who's not yet a Christian. Calling that person to... Make a decision for Christ. Are you with him or against him? And I am speaking to the person who's not yet a Christian here this morning, and I know there are some. You must reckon with this question. But more than just the person who's not yet a Christian, this passage, me this morning, speaking to all of us, because each one of us must answer to this king. We all are called to allegiance in every part of our lives, in every moment of our lives. All of us, today, now, are you with him or against him? 
May this morning, in John 18 and 19, be an opportunity for you to consider that question and to reckon with it and bring your life into line with Him. You must. So we are in John 18 and the beginning of 19. Last week, in the beginning of chapter 18, we saw Jesus displayed there in His arrest as being in charge of everything, even those events. He is the I Am Three times it says that in the passage, emphasizing the I am. He is the the sovereign one in charge of everything. He's in control. And he boldly stands up and, and confidently stands for truth there. And contrasted with him is Peter, shrinking back in fear. Fearing a, a servant girl, fearing the world and what it will do to him, fearing for his life. And if we are to avoid fearing like Peter and to stand with Christ and to proclaim Him, we must go through a process of fearing Christ more, day by day by day, moment by moment, moment, fearing Christ more, that is, holding Him in a sober regard, bowing before Him. We must go through a process of fearing Christ more than we fear anything else if we're going to avoid shrinking back like Peter did. That was last week. This morning we move into the latter part of 18, the beginning of 19. The trial of Jesus before Pilate. And here the sovereign issue, the the control issue, the confidence issue gets shaped as kingship. That's what John emphasizes this morning. It's a long passage. The whole trial, though, needs to be read together because in it, John has very cleverly shaped something for us. There are two realms And Pilate shuttles back and forth between the two realms. Jesus inside, outside the crowds and the leaders. Back and forth, back and forth. Who's he going to choose? Who are you going to choose? Let me read the whole passage. It begins in John 18 and moves in through 19. Starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man was not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What's truth? After he said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So... When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic at Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is a marvelous story. There's a lot in it, and there's a lot of drama in it. Make a great movie. The passage begins with Caiaphas turning Jesus over to Pilate, and this wouldn't have been the first time that Pilate heard about this. He probably authorized the soldiers to go and arrest him the night before, so he's expecting Jesus to show up here, the Jews to arrive, and when they come, they announce their presence, and they won't go in to see him, so they won't get defiled and miss the rest of the Passover. So Pilate comes out to them and says, What's the charge? And they say, trust us, this is a bad guy. That's not going to fly. Pilate wants a real charge. He's going to hold a real trial. And perhaps the Jews are a little bothered by that because they're thinking he authorized the soldiers, he must agree with us, right? Why is he going through this process of a, of a real trial? But what's beginning here is a thread that runs throughout this whole section. Pilate hates these people utterly hates them, and the feeling's probably mutual. And at every possible point here, Pilate does something to show his contempt for them, to kind of stick it into them and turn a little bit. You want this to go quickly and me to just wash my hands of it? Well, okay, well, then we'll have a really long, drawn-out, fair trial. You want to crucify? Well, you go, you go kill him. Oh, I forgot you can't. You don't have authority, do you? I do. Forgot about that, Sorry. Back and forth. This is throughout this whole section, they're doing this to each other. They're working one another, the two parties. Manipulation, posturing, 
human beings making decisions, taking action, and the text remind us, reminds us that behind it all is God in charge. Down in verse 32 as well as in verse 11 in the next chapter, there's a little comment thrown in there. All the events of history that brought Rome to Judea, that brought Pilate to the seat of authority right here this morning, happened so that, the verse says, so that Jesus' word about how he would die would be fulfilled. They might have added in, so that the Old Testament's word about how the Messiah would die would be fulfilled. Same thing we saw in last week's passage, where Jesus spoke to the guards and released his friends so that his word would be fulfilled about how none of his sheep were lost. The point that John's throwing in here to remind us of it, some tragic stuff's going to happen here that God has ordained. The word of Jesus requires history to work out in certain ways. A little side comment, really. One that we should note. And this, then the story moves on. Pilate returns into his headquarters where he begins to question Jesus, and here we see the charge that was leveled against him. The Jews have taken the, the whole idea of the Messiah and they've turned it here in a way that was likely to get a Roman's attention. They're emphasizing the king, a, a rival ruler here. So Pilate says, okay, I'll look into that. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you? And then Jesus explains about his kingship, his reign. He's not talking about geographic location. You remember, world does not equal planet. He's not talking about where it is geographically located when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He means it's not of this type, not of this worldly pattern. It's different. You, you guys, here in this fallen human sphere, you set up, you establish, you grow kingdoms based on power, muscle, sword, manipulation, conniving. Not me. I'm different than that. That's not how my kingdom is established. It's not how it's extended. And when Pilate hears that, he very quickly deduces, this guy is no problem for Rome. He's not an insurrectionist. But he did talk about a reign, so you are a king then. And Jesus' response is, is an affirmation, but it's kind of like this. Yes, but I wouldn't quite put it like that because you're going to misunderstand. I just told you what my reign is not like. Here's what it is like. I've come down to earth to take on a body for a purpose. I've come into the world to make the truth clear. I'm on a mission of revelation here to show something. To make something about God clear, the truth, not math truth or physics truth, the truth about God and people. And when I reveal that, some people will hear it and will be drawn to it, will embrace it, and will be embraced by it, and will find genuine life in here. What about you, Pilate? Jesus is actually turning this a little bit. He's beginning to preach a little bit at his own trial, throwing one out there to see if Pilate nibbles, and he doesn't truth. What's truth? Kook. Probably what he's thinking. This guy's here on charges of being a threat to Rome and he's talking about some abstract truth theories and he turns on his heel and leaves to go out and talk to the Jews. But certainly this question is written in here left kind of hanging there for us to consider. The flow here. Are you the king? Yeah, I'm, I'm the king of truth. What's true? 
left out there for us to hear and to think about? What's true here? Well, Pilate leaves and goes out and speaks to the Jewish rulers again. I find no guilt in this guy. He's not guilty. The first of three times in this passage that Pilate says, Jesus is not guilty. And that should have been the end of it. But perhaps because he has some weak moral character, or perhaps because he wants to rub the leaders' noses in it, he thinks that the leaders are basically jealous of Jesus. A few days before Jesus comes into town, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds are crazy about Jesus, he thinks, and the leaders are probably jealous. So if I ask the crowds, as he had to, as was the custom, who do you want? You want me to release Jesus to you? They'll take Jesus back and the leaders will be snubbed. This is going to be great. So he says, you want me to release Jesus? But surprisingly, they say no. They want Barabbas instead. The text I read says he's a robber. It's more than that. He's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. He's a zealot. You might think, well, of course the crowds want him. He's against Rome. This guy's not good for Israel. He's dangerous to Israel. And by the time that John wrote this book, everybody knows. People of Barabbas' sort led a revolt that Rome crushed, destroyed the temple, killed tons of people. Barabbas is dangerous for Israel. But they want him anyway, anybody but Jesus. Give us, give us Barabbas, who's dangerous for us. And so Pilate releases great irony here. John never passes up a chance to catch the irony. John, Pilate releases a guy who's dangerous for Israel, whose name literally means son of the father. Bar Abbas, your Abba in there. And he keeps in prison and eventually crucifies the true son of the father who would be a savior to Israel. Great irony here. But it's just getting started. Pilate now needs to devise a different plan to get rid of Jesus. He still thinks he's not guilty. He doesn't want to kill him. So he thinks, I'll satisfy their anger by whipping him, punishing him in some way, and then I'll let him go. So he has the soldiers flog him. It's a whipping then hold this mock coronation scene, and then he brings him out again, a joke in his eyes. Behold the man. Get, get a load of this guy, the king. Right, who could think this guy's a king? He's not guilty of anything. The leaders, though, still want blood. Not just blood from a whipping, they want him killed. And so they change the charge just a little bit. He's made himself out to be the son of God, emphasizing the other side of the Messiah claim, the one they're really bothered by, the blasphemy. And when Pilate hears that, superstitious as he is, worshiping many gods, it's his religious background, he gets a little worried because he's just beaten a guy who might have magical, mystical powers. So he asks him, where are you from? Jesus won't answer. They discuss authority, as I mentioned earlier. And the text then emphasizes, the grammar emphasizes, Pilate from then on is trying consistently to let him go. But finally, the leaders back him into a corner by saying, you're a traitor. You're a traitor if you let him go. If you let go a rival king to Caesar, Caesar will have your head. And to that, Pilate gives in. But in one last mocking gesture, here's the irony of this again. As he sits down to judge him, he brings him out and says, behold your king. Shall I kill your king, the only king you people are ever going to have? I'm about to kill him. Want me to do that? And in saying that, inadvertently, he goads the leaders into showing something profound about their hearts. We have no king but Caesar, 
they say. If you're, if you're a Jewish person and you're reading that, that should shock you. Members of the Sanhedrin and the high priests said, we have no king but Caesar. If there's anything clear in the Old Testament, it's that God rules over Israel. If there's anything clear, take Judges 8, for instance, verse 23. Gideon, a great, a great leader, a great judge, delivers the people, and people want to make him king, and he says, no, 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 I won't rule over you, nor will my sons rule over you. The Lord, the I Am, will rule over you. And here at the trial of Jesus, the leaders say, no, he won't. Caesar will. It's shocking that they say that. If you're looking for blasphemy, there it is. Right there on their lips in court. And that's where the trial ends. It doesn't even record the official verdict because John wants to leave the last statement. It's that one. Because kingship is the issue. We have no king but Caesar. Who is king? King everywhere. King over you. King in your heart. King over every aspect of your life all the time. Who is king? That's the question. And with irony here, John describes Pilate as mockingly affirming the truth and the Jewish leaders as alarmingly denying the truth and Jesus saying, I'm the truth. Reform against him. Here's the main point for this morning. Simple, this is not profound. The main point though, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So, wholeheartedly submit to his reign. He's the sovereign one, and the only appropriate response to a king is submission. It does no good to say, he's my king, and I'll do what I want, thank you. And I'll think what I want, and I'll pursue my own agenda and goals, and if his agenda, goals, whatever, match up with mine, well then great, then we'll be on the same page for a moment. But here's what I'm really about. But he's my king. No, that's a contradiction you have to deal with. He's king, which means give allegiance to his reign, period. We're going to look at three aspects of the reign of this king here this morning from this passage. Start with the first one, right in the middle. Structurally, John has written this and shaped it so that the passage all focuses down the beginning of chapter 19. There are seven scenes of in, out, in, out, in, out. And the middle one, right in the middle, is this mock coronation scene where Jesus is crowned. And it's all intended to be a massive humiliation of Jesus, a shaming of him. This is where we find the first aspect of the reign of Jesus. Jesus' reign is gained, acquired, by humiliation. Jesus' reign is gained by his humiliation. Rises up out of his humiliation. First five verses of chapter 19 trying to show us that. Again, in a great irony. Generally speaking, when a, a people crowns a king or a queen, it's done with extravagant pomp. The best that that nation has to offer. 
parades and, and dignitaries and religious escorts and military escorts and, and solemn sayings and prayers and huge ornate buildings filled up with dignitaries dressed in their finest in a long, flowing, resplendent robe and a, a radiant crown carried on a velvet pillow. That's how coronations happen. But in the book of John, coronation happens in a Roman courtyard where Jesus is hauled over to a post, tied to it, and whipped until he can barely stand. They don't intend to kill him yet. They're going to do worse later. But blood streaming down his back, and this is not fun. And then the soldiers make a crown, mimicking how an image of a crown would look with the metal sticking up and then the sunlight shining off of it. They make a crown of thorns with between 8 and 12 inch thorns likely sticking off of this crown. They press it down onto his head. And as they laugh, the blood begins to flow out of his head, down his face, into his eyes, into his beard. And he's standing there nearly naked because they'd stripped off his clothes to beat him. That won't do for a king. We need a robe. How about a Roman soldier's cloak? And they drape it over his shoulders. Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews. And they bow and stand up and then slap him. Not really to hurt him, more to, to shame him. Elsewhere, we learn that he was beaten at this time, but John emphasizes the shame of the backhanded slap. Who would do that to a Caesar? Well, this is some Caesar, some king. Get that in your mind. Picture Jesus standing there like that. See it in your mind. A king standing center stage with the audience and the attendants all bowed on one knee around him but they're laughing at him and mocking him and joking at him and spitting at him. Behold this man. Get a load of this guy. Thinks he's a king or something. He stands there beaten and bleeding. Don't feel sorry for Jesus here. That might be a natural human feeling. Don't feel sorry for Jesus here. Don't pity him. That would miss the point. We are not to read this and say, oh, poor Jesus. We're supposed to read this and say, wow. And to marvel at it. Why? Because you've read the rest of the book and you know that this is the I am. This is God come in flesh who walked on water a few chapters back. Who raised a dead man out of the grave who healed a man's ear. This is the I Am, God in flesh, and He stands there like this. He has unfathomable power. A soldier steps forward gruffly, takes his arms and tie them around the post. Jesus looks down at that hand, and if He says a word, the hand turns leprous, shrivels up, and loses all power. The squad of soldiers stands around and mocks and jeers, and if He wished it, just wished it. They all instantly disintegrate into dust. Pandemonium becomes silence at his word. He can reclaim the glory that is his in an instant. The glory that he laid aside and did not want to grasp, he can get it back right now if he so chooses. Atoms disintegrate if he wants them to. Dust becomes dust if he wants them to. 
Matter ceases to exist if he wants it to. Why doesn't he want it to? Because in the wisdom of God, this shaming is the road to the cross, which is the road to the glory of Christ. He is deliberately embracing something here. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2. Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped and held onto, he had it. But to be regarded that way, he let go of it and humbled himself and came to earth taking on the form of a servant. Humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. We see that right here. Humbling himself. And Paul continues, and so, because he did that, and so, he has been given the name Lord. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and declare him Lord, King. There is a path that the Father has laid out from glory, incarnation, taking on flesh, humbling himself to walk the earth for all those years, humbling himself here in the courtyard, going to the cross so that he might be exalted back to glory with a people. With a people. Having defeated sin and death. He can cut all that short and go to glory right now if he wants to without a people, without a kingdom, and without defeating death. This is the plan of God. And we should look at this and say, wow. Marvel at profound meekness. Profound obedience and submission to the Father. Profound desire to make a people. To extend His reign through and in. They crowned Him and robed Him and hailed Him and had no idea how right they were. Most look at him there and see, how can this guy be the messianic king? What kind of a deliverer is this guy? And we look at him and say, I know what kind of deliverer he is. This is the deliverance. We're seeing it. This is the crowning. Next week is the enthroning. This is the king. John describes the coronation of Jesus like this rather than some image from heaven John's going to see images from heaven. He's going to write about them in Revelation. He describes it like this so that we will forever associate in our minds the crowning of King Jesus and the shaming of King Jesus. Those things fit together. They are one of the same. He is the king because he is shamed. Because the shaming is what wins for him a people. This is all completely counterintuitive. This flies in the face of worldly wisdom and marks it as the wisdom of God. Get that in your mind. Think about that. When you think about the cross, when you live cross-centeredly, as we talked about a few weeks ago, picture the coronation right here. It's all part of Jesus being lifted up in front of our eyes. And that requires a response from us. This is the king. We have to respond. The whole of the story, as I said earlier, is pressing that point onto us. Decide. Decide. Pilate, back and forth and back and forth, trying to decide with Jesus, with the world. With what's true, with what works. Which am I going to pick? The leaders themselves 
face a similar choice. God, Jesus, or what I want, my, my power, my situation, my status here amongst this people. They face a similar choice. So here's the second point. Here's the second aspect of his reign. This King Jesus demands our allegiance. Demands it wholeheartedly, not grudgingly, not partially. He's a king. Bow your knee to him now before it's too late. Perhaps because of our history, our American history, or perhaps because we're just generally culturally individualistic, oftentimes Americans and and others as well, but especially Americans, have a hard time getting this concept of king. I actually read of a conversation once between two people, and they were talking about an ancient king, and one person said to the other, so, so when exactly did the people elect him king? They didn't. That's not how you become king. People don't campaign, and then others get to vote. That's not how the reign of Jesus is established. That's not what it's like. He's not a democratically elected president. We often hear this concept of king, and download democracy into it. Maybe some modern kings are like that. Ancient kings certainly were not. A a democratic view that lets us kind of pick and choose, and then if we don't like him, throw him out. If you have a king, life has to conform to his wishes. Jesus is king, and he demands, demands allegiance. One day, This will happen universally. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, Lord, to the great immeasurable blessing of those who have responded to grace now and to the great immeasurable sorrow of those who do not and wait until it's too late. Now, right now, this king who, who is demanding, he is a king. This king also graciously makes an offer. He offers to people. These are the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, humble enough to... Go through this. I'm gentle and humble. Learn from me. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is a marvelous offer. But don't misunderstand this offer. It's an offer you can't refuse, it's actually a command. Come. Take my yoke. That means submit. Come to me. Submit in allegiance. What you'll receive is really, really, really good. Rest in here. The messianic kingdom of deliverance will come to live in you in here and then one day everywhere out there. But you have to come and submit in all areas of life. You must lay down your life at His feet right now. And I know there are some people here who have not yet done that. I plead with you. He's a king. 
He comes now with an offer. But it's an offer now and later that demands allegiance. You can come to Him and find rest. Peace in here. An end to all the striving. All the trying to do more and more and more. More and more and more correctly. Being frustrated when you fail. Living with a huge burden of bricks on your shoulder, weighing you down, crushing you. You can get rid of all of that and find rest by submitting to this king. Not someone else's rules, not someone else's standards. Submitting to this king, taking his yoke, which is easy, and brings a burden that is light. Come. But that's also the message to all of us. It's also the point that Jesus wants all of us to hear here in this. He's the king of us too. In and out. Everywhere. You need to take this concept and take your life and look at them together and say, where do I, frankly, deny the kingship of Jesus? Where do I live on my own path? You can't do that. Repent. If you're taking his authority lightly, turning away from it, repent and come back. He offers rest to you if you do that. I need to say that. Maybe some need to hear that. Maybe some need to think through the commands of the Bible. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 14 of this book. If you love me, obey my commands. Several times he says that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That one kills me. I almost dare don't say that because I'm a hypocrite. But it's there. King Jesus commands me. Most of you men commands you. Love your wife sacrificially, dyingly. Flee sexual immorality. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Which of the commands of God strike you? And if you're honest, you say, I've set that one aside. I need to repent and come back. The kingship of Jesus reaches into every aspect of your life all the time. You need to make that clear. There's one other thing that I want to point out about this king's reign and allegiance to it. This relates again to mission. If our king is about something, we must be about that same thing. His agenda is our agenda. And once we've established that he's got a mission that he's on, that he's been sent to do something, we're sent to do the same thing. And to turn away from that is to again turn away from the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is really clear. Pilate, I am a king and I do have a kingdom and I am spreading it. Not like you think, but it is spreading. How is it spread? We'll talk about that in just a minute. 
But it's really clear that he's doing something that we must be about also, the mission of expanding the kingdom of Christ, taking his reign to the ends of the earth. That's what allegiance requires of us. And this king requires our allegiance. Now, last point, the final final aspect of this reign, I'll be brief here. Drawn from the exchange in verses 36 and 37. In order to explain what kind of king he is, Jesus addressed what the kingdom would be like, how it's built, how it expands. Here's the last, last aspect of the reign. Jesus' reign grows by proclamation of truth. It grows, it expands by the proclamation of the truth. Remember, Pilate's trying to ascertain, are you an insurrectionist? Are you a rebel? Are you leading a military revolt? And the question is, no, not a threat militarily, but I am trying to build a kingdom. I don't do it like you do, but verse 37, I do it by bearing witness to the truth. That's his mission. But many times before, this king himself is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He's come to reveal truth, to flick on the light. Remember that? To turn on the light to show us who we are and to show us who God is and how God intends to join the two together again. To make all of that clear to us. That's what he's about. There's a theological point here that leads to a practical point. Just carefully, verse 37 has an order to it. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. It is not everyone who listens to me becomes of the truth. Critical order there. You're of the truth first, and then when Jesus speaks the truth, oh, and you respond to it. It's kind of like this. I saw this in a TV show once. Imagine a parking garage full of cars. Somebody rides up in an elevator, steps off the elevator onto this deck of the garage looking for his friend's car that he's never seen before. A whole bunch of cars there. Who knows which one it is, but I have his keys in my hand with one of those automatic unlock things on it. So he steps off and he just says, click, and over in the corner, beep, beep, and the lights flash. Which car belongs to these keys? That one? That one does. It just self-identified. How did I find it? I pressed the right button. Now, if none of them had, had beeped, none, none had unlocked, flashed their lights, I would have walked over here and done it again. It's here somewhere. I find it by pressing the right button. And what Jesus says is the right button is the truth button. I press the truth button. I declare truth, and those who are of the truth come to me. They respond. Now, there are further paths we could walk down theologically there, but I want to focus on the, the mission point right here. What are we to do then? Press the truth button. And again and again and again and again and again. Walk all throughout the garage because maybe there's more than one car here. That's the analogy a little bit. You keep pressing the truth button. And Jesus promises, he says, those who are the truth will respond to that. They will listen. They will come. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. He's already told us that. What do we do? Declare the shepherd's voice. We declare the truth about God. 
Not viciously. That's lying in your manner. Declare the truth about God with proper manner. Jesus will take care of the rest. But if you don't declare the truth, only declare half the truth or wait to declare the truth until they've warmed up to you or something that's frankly not true, you rely on some gimmick or you try to twist their arms, you're messing things up. The American church needs to get this. We seem to have lost faith in the gospel, in what Jesus said, in who Jesus is, and we don't believe it works. So we change stuff. Try to maybe lace it with a bunch of cotton candy and make it look good. Don't do that. Preach the truth. People of the truth will be drawn. He has a mission, an agenda that he's on. We're supposed to be on it too. What are we supposed to do when we're on that mission? We declare the truth. Kindly, graciously, clearly. He'll take care of the rest. There's hope in that, and there's direction in that. Preach the truth. Jesus is king. We have to wholeheartedly submit to him, which includes embracing the mission that he's on and his methods on that mission of proclaiming the truth. When we do that, he promises that he'll spread his reign through us. Let me pray. Lord, you are the king. It's your mission. It's your job. I pray that you would use us in it. Lord, beyond just the mission to reach others, I pray that your kingship would extend into our hearts in new and in deeper and profound ways that we would be conformed to you. We would experience sanctification. Lord, reign in us in every way. Be exalted in our lives, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.